and exclusivity. Around the world, Trump has branded prestigious landmarks. This year, Century Properties proudly brings the Trump brand to the Philippines with Trump Tower Manila. You know, this project is going to exude luxury. It's going to stand for everything that the Trump name signifies. Manila represented a great opportunity for our brand. The consumer there really understands the Trump brand, really has a great quest for luxury, really understands fine, fine real estate, is an international population, and they're really drawn to the product that we deliver. Real estate's always about location. Hello, I'm Liam Gammon, and I'm the editor of New Mandala, and this is the latest in our special series of podcasts that take a look at the Philippines beyond the cliches. That's hosted by our terrific Philippines editor, Nicole Corrado, who joins me right here. Nicole, which cliche exactly does that little clip we just listened to speak to? Well, of course, that's a clip of an advertisement, which we are not sponsoring, of the Trump Towers opening in Manila. And I think it's an interesting um, example of the cliche that when the Philippines thinks of development, it always looks to its former colonial master, the United States. I think there's a lot to criticize in that impression, and so I brought in an anthropologist also based here at the ANU, Hannah Bullock, who's conducted extensive ethnographic fieldwork in the island of Sikihor. And in her work, she tries to understand how locals make sense of development, their views of development. And without giving too much spoilers, what we will hear for the next half hour are the complex ways in which uh, Filipinos think of development beyond the United States ideal. We are fortunate to have Dr. Hannah Bullock with us at New Mandala's headquarters at the Australian National University. Hannah is the author of the book, In Pursuit of Progress, Narratives of Development on a Philippine Island. The book came out in 2017, published by the University of Hawaii Press. So Hannah, thank you for joining us. Hi Nicole, thanks for having me here. So the myth or stereotype we are unpacking in the next half hour is the concept of development in the Philippines. And when I read your book, I kind of remembered my childhood growing up in Manila. And I remember my parents getting so excited when the first branch of TGI Fridays opened up, when Burger King came to Manila, when we finally had cable and we were able to watch CNN, MTV, and HBO. And to me, it feels like these are all indications of my family, middle-class family's aspiration of being like America. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I guess a lot of Filipino families share this, that when we think of development, we look to the US. And of course, now it's kind of funny for me thinking about this. So when I read your book about the various complex narratives of development, it feels like this myth or stereotype is challenged. So tell us about the research. Thanks, Nicole. So I think it's useful to um, start out by taking a step back from this concept of development, because on one level that something called development exists in the world seems like common sense, right? Development seems like a thing, a process that we can objectively observe in the world. And a lot of the time, scholars do use the concept of development in exactly that way as an analytical category, um, a framework, if you like, through which we understand the world. But in the 1990s, academics who became known as post-development scholars turned development into an object of analysis. So rather than using it as an analytical category to understand the world, they actually scrutinised the concept of development itself. They asked, you know, what do we mean when we talk about development, modernisation, progress? And they point out that the dominant notion of development 
is very much a Euro-American construct, or at least it has its, its origins in a Euro-American uh, history. So it's a metaphor in a sense that we uh, use to make sense of the world, to help us cognitively, uh, or, or to help us cognitively organise or map differences between people and places and over time. But it's not the only lens through which we could understand those differences. But in constructing these notions of development or notions of progress, Euro-American societies placed themselves at the top of a development hierarchy. Um, and they assumed that everyone else should want to aspire to be like them. Um, and in places like the Philippines that were colonised by Spain and the US, these ideas were really influential and very much communicated to people through uh, the education system, among other things. Now, over the 20th century, notions of development became more nuanced and more complex, and there, was, there became a greater focus on local knowledge and local ideals. But the, the origins of concepts of development and progress in Euro-American Euro thought still fundamentally influence the way people think about it on some level. So there are all manner of assumptions that we make about development. And this includes things like that societies start out poor and develop over time or become wealthier over time. So poverty is framed as an original state. Another assumption is that becoming developed means ever-increasing levels of consumption, of urbanisation, of industrialisation. And the, the concept of progress in particular also often draws on spatial metaphors. This idea that progress is a linear path, that societies travel over time, um, or it's sometimes conceived as an upward movement from poverty towards wealth. So to be clear, the post-development scholars weren't saying that inequality doesn't exist, but they were saying that some of the assumptions that we make about development are not the only way that we could understand it. So reading this work that deconstructed the notion of development, I became really interested in this idea that if, if development is a social construct, if it's a human invention, if you like, then different societies are going to have different understandings of it. Um, they may have, to some extent, adopted that Euro-American dominant idea of development because it's so ubiquitous and so often repeated throughout the world, but they're always going to understand it in relation to their own local concepts and local worldviews, or they may have their own pre-existing notions of something that, that looks a lot like progress or development. I focused in particular on um, a part of the Philippines called Sikihor, and I became really interested in learning what are local notions of development in this area and how do these notions of development influence people's sense of identity, so their understandings of their past, their futures and their place in the world. So for example, I think one of the, the things that led me to think about this, there's a Nepalese uh, scholar, Nanda Thresva, I'm sorry if I haven't pronounced his name correctly, um, and he talked about his childhood in Nepal during which time he came to realise that he belonged to this category underdeveloped. And he said that poverty had never seemed dehumanising to him until that point. Um, and for this huge category of people, which was most of the world's population, their ascribed identity becomes defined in terms of deficit, in terms of what they aren't and what they don't have. So 
when I did research on Sikihua, I asked people what development or what Kalambo'an looked like to them. So that's the, the Cebuano concept of development. Um, and I also asked people what kind of lives they wanted for themselves and their family. So interestingly, most people replied that they wanted the simple life. And this entailed having a modest house, like living in a Nipa hut, having some backyard animals, being able to send their kids to school and afford healthcare, having enough to eat. So it connoted sufficiency, but not excess. Um, and one of the other really important aspects for people of the simple life was having good relationships with friends and family, um, having time for family and for community. At the same time, interestingly enough, I, I also paid close attention to what people actually spend their money on when they come into to some money, right? And I observed that, um, so I mean, I was working in an area where people uh, some people's incomes were increasing considerably through remittances sent home. Um, and one of the most common things that people were doing with that money was building uh, large concrete houses and filling them with items that um, were sort of indicators of status, if you like. Uh, so sometimes, you know, appliances that they didn't even necessarily use very much. Uh, and, you know, I... I did a census of the village, so I actually visited every single house in the village that I lived in. So that was about 150 households. And some people lived in these Nipa huts made out of locally made materials, so woven bamboo. Uh, Nipa is the roofing material. And, you know, other people lived in these concrete houses with, um, with metal roofs. And it pretty quickly became apparent that the more comfortable houses to live in were actually the the bamboo houses because they could breathe and most people didn't have uh, air conditioning and there wasn't uh, a steady supply of electricity. So in fact, you know, and a lot of people, because I, I myself lived in a, in a Nipa hut and people would often say to me, oh, Nipa huts are much more comfortable, they're much more practical. Uh, but at the same time, that wasn't what people spent their money on when they, when they had the choice. So I didn't necessarily understand this as people contradicting themselves, um, but I think that people do have competing visions of the good life. And, you know, these different visions express themselves at different times in different ways, right? Um, and I noticed in particular that there was a lot of ambivalence around the, the value of individualism in particular. Uh, so I mentioned that the idea of the simple life, one important aspect of this is being able to have time for friends and family. And one of the things people said to me is, you know, if you're always out earning money and if you're always uh, worrying about your business, you won't have time for your friends and family. At the same time, people, um, you know, did see uh, increased incomes as part of development. So there was kind of this, this real ambivalence about what, you know, th about the place of individualism in society. It was seen as something that's allowed somewhere like the US to become wealthy, but at the same time, people weren't at all certain that it was, that it was a virtue. Right, I, f I think I find that interesting because it's a good counter-narrative to this perspective that all Filipinos aspire 
to follow the trajectory of the U.S., which, as you mentioned, theoretically hasn't always been the trajectory, especially for post-development scholars, that there are various interpretations of what a good life means. Uh, I remember reading in one of your articles, you were quoting one of your respondents named Luz, who was saying, if you live a simple life, you will have good relationships with family, neighbors, and friends. But if you're rich, you'll always be bickering with people. Mm -hmm. So in a way, there's this moral calculation of what wealth or aspiring for wealth does to social relationships, which may mean more um, for communities. So tell us more about these other ethical ambiguities or moral um, perspectives that people bring in to their respective concepts of development. Yeah, so I think uh, I felt that one of the really interesting and probably sometimes quite problematic ways that this played out was in relation to, to identity and how they understood, how people understood themselves in comparison to Americans. So, you know, when I asked people, why do you think some places are rich and some places are poor? People often answered me with things like, you know, in, in places like America, people cooperate and uh, they cooperate to make their place wealthy. Um, whereas we Filipinos, we don't cooperate with one another. Um, and, you know, I heard a lot of, uh, kind of disparaging remarks that people made about what some people called the sort of Filipino personality. In fact, this was a term that often came up was the Filipino personality. You know, they'd say, we have crab mentality, um, you know, we bicker with one another, we can't cooperate, we're lazy. I heard that one sometimes as well, we're lazy. Um, you know, if, you, if you're lazy, you'll never progress, people said to me. But interestingly, at the same time, I, I mean, I should point out to listeners that so I'm from New Zealand. I'm, I'm Pākehā, which is a New Zealander of European descent, so I'm Caucasian. And so the people who I was working among considered me Americana, and they, they, they often referred to me as the Americana, and I would have to correct people and say, you know, Diliko Americana, you know, Tugga New Zealand call. Um, I'm from New Zealand. But then people said to me, oh, that doesn't matter, you're still part of the American race. So I also was interested in how people interacted with me as a, as a, you know, as an Americana. And people sometimes said to me things like, you know, in your place, people don't look after their, their family. Like here in the Philippines, we look after our family. That's really important to us. And, you know, there was just this subtle kind of things that came through about the assumptions of what, you know, what my place was like, but just felt like this, critique in a way of, of American society at the same time. And I talk about a range of these uh, aspects in the book. So I think there's kind of this, this constant playing out of this tension between, uh, you know, thinking about the, the ways in which uh, a, a society might progress through focus on, on money and how that might act against it. But I think you know, those, those questions of identity were also really important to me. The, I, I was quite concerned about the way that people negatively compared themselves to Americans in, in ways that I think have very much ingrained through some of these deficit discourses that come through in, in these sort of traditional ideas of of development and progress, that idea that you're constantly comparing yourself and finding yourself falling short. And some of that is kind of grounded in, a, in an idea that people can pull themselves up, their, up by their bootstraps, if you like, and ignoring those wider socioeconomic structures. 
obviously we know that people in the Philippines work really hard, right? And it doesn't always mean that, you know, if you're a poor farmer, you can work hard. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be able to make a better life for yourself or make a, uh, or be able to achieve the levels of wealth that you might like. Yeah, I think those notions of development kind of sometimes focus quite heavily on people and communities as units responsible for their own uh, for their own progress without looking at those broader structures in which people are living can be quite problematic for for a sense of identity as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in the piece in Anthropological Forum that you published, you did unpack the concept of colonial mentality and how a lot of nuances are part of that process. I mean, you mentioned earlier that they were referring to you as an Americana. And the ways in which uh, Filipinos look to America is that it's the white racial other. But on the other hand, you also make an argument that it's somehow connected to the concept of selfhood. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so I mean, this is one of the things that actually interested me when I first went there was that, um, so I, I, I should mention that so I first came to the Philippines in 2004 and I lived there for about two years uh, altogether. And was this in Sikihor already? Yeah, okay. in Sikihor. And you know, I found that um, people didn't ask me a lot of questions about where I had come from and about my place. And this, I, I wasn't actually the first person to experience this. There was uh, an anthropologist who had worked on the island a couple of decades before, and he actually mentioned the same thing. But he, I think he also talked about it in terms of this idea that people felt that they knew the US and part of the reason I think for this is because, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but growing up in the Philippines where it's so heavily influenced by, you know, the, the American curriculum, for example, so heavily has influenced the Philippine curriculum. And there's a range of ways that the Philippines is culturally orientated towards the US means that I think people do have a sense of knowing the place, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it stands as a kind of a, a wealthy other, or sometimes as a utopic kind of other, this idealised um, America. And so... But do you sense an aspiration to become the other, to become America? No, I think, well, yes and no. I mean, I think, um, I think people still want to be maybe a different version of themselves. I, I mean, I, I got the sense, like, a lot of people wanted to migrate to the US right. and live there for a period of time. But a lot of people also said to me they ultimately wanted to retire in the Philippines. And I think this ties back to the observations you put forward in the book that in as much as there is this concept of progress, there is this counter narrative of a counter narrative against the relentless pursuit of wealth, of just yeah, accumulating exactly. resources because there are higher values prized um, by particular communities. And out of curiosity, of all field sites you can choose, why, why did you pick Sikihor <laughs> as a field site? Um, in the series, we will hear from uh, Clark Jones, mm. who's done an ethnography of prisons. Mm. So I think my curiosity here is the choice of field site. It's not just for the beaches, is it? No. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I never really even liked beaches that much when I was growing up. Right, so okay. I often thought it was a bit um, funny that I should end up on a beach island like Sikihor. But, um, you know, one of the first ethnographies I read of the Philippines was Jean-Paul Dumont's Versailles and Vignettes, which is the book I was mentioning a moment ago. And he did fieldwork on Sikihor in the early 1980s, and he just produced this absolutely beautiful ethnography 
of the island, you know, beautifully read and well thought through. And so I think that was my first introduction to Sikihua, which created intrigue for me to some extent. And some listeners may also be aware that Sikihua is renowned as a place of traditional healing, um, but even has a reputation for sorcery and witchcraft and sort of generally hyperactive paranormal activity. Um, and this in itself has attracted quite a few anthropologists, particularly anthropologists of religion and of medicine over the years. But I think it's worth pointing out that Sikihua is not really different from other uh, parts of the Philippines in terms of religion. It's Even though it has this reputation, it's a predominantly Catholic island um, and it has what Cornelio describes as, you know, every, everyday Catholicism, Catholicism uh, integrated with animist beliefs. So what interested me, I think, was the, the association between some of those animist beliefs from an outside perspective. So the way that people make these assumptions about belief on Sikihua and how they associate that with concepts of backwardness and underdevelopment. And I thought, you know, how do people actually, how, how do people on Sikihua actually negotiate those tensions and understand some of those relationships in the context of their everyday lives? And when they go off the island and they have to um, negotiate those tensions. So that was one of the things I think that interested me. Um, and there was also a fair amount of development um, activity happening on the island. So when I first went there, in 2004, it was a pilot project for Kalahi Sids, the World Bank engineered and um, government of the Philippines a development project that was subsequently rolled, rolled out across thousands of barangays in the Philippines. There was, so there was that major project taking place on Sikihua. There were various other government and NGO projects there that I thought, well, this could be interesting for my study. And of course, I think one of the most powerful things about your work is it's, it's ethnographically driven. And I think I have a lot of admiration for ethnographers because it really just disrupts our taken for granted assumptions of what a good life looks like. And I think I wonder how your work can speak to the more dominant narratives of what economic developments in the Philippines should look like. How do we speak to economists or political economists who kind of prescribed a certain way for the country uh, to progress, whether it's through, I don't know, export-oriented industrialization or labor migration or um, imposing uh, taxes on sugary drinks to finance the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. These are all policy interventions that come from a technocratic perspective. Mm -hmm. I wonder then from an ethnographer, what kinds of contributions or assumptions uh, we can challenge and to speak to these dominant discourses of development. You know, I think it's important for us to not assume we know what development should look like to people and actually that asking people what, you know, what it means to them is, is a really important aspect. But even within that, people will, because as I explain, people don't necessarily hold a singular notion of development. So I think we have to be attentive to the fact that sometimes we may be hearing what we are expecting to hear or wanting to hear. So looking for those subtleties. And I think that anthropologists through the ethnographic method have a particular um, role to play in 
bringing some of those nuances out and actually translating them to uh, to policymakers and to people in other disciplines as well. So if there are other um, stereotypes we can have when it, um, coming from the perspective of doing fieldwork in Sikihor, what other um, myths or stereotypes you can have? Because some of the stuff I can think of is there's always this, like what you said, a pathologizing or a disparagement of the rural mm -hmm. way of life on how this way of life should change and how there should be um, bigger companies that organize small-scale fishing or how there should be a tourism boom with a very beautiful island. So how do we speak to these um, prescriptions? You know, people talked about these things on the island. You know, on, on one level, they want more uh, tourism coming to their island, but they were very adamant in saying, you know, they, they didn't want the island to become like Barakai or um, certain other parts of the Philippines where they felt that that it that they've become overrun with tourism or um, that they do want jobs and secure livelihoods, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want more urbanization and industrialization. So I think one of the the stereotypes that that I feel is really important to be challenged is this idea that whether or not we're looking at participatory development that sort of grassroots and prioritizes people's own notions of development or whether it's it's some kind of bigger top-down notion of development if we're focusing on the idea that people can sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and can you know just need to change the ways that they're doing things in order to to be lifted out of poverty and are not looking at those broader socioeconomic relations in which people are embedded, um, then we're kind of ignoring half the picture because inherently development is always about inequality. And that's, that means it's as much about the wealthy as it is about the poor and it's about relationships between us. So I think that that's something that could have a lot more focus when we, when we look at addressing development those relations of inequality and how distribution, redistribution may actually be more important in some ways than focusing solely on poverty reduction. Right, that's actually a super important insight because when we talk, ab talk about uh, yeah, rural contexts like Sikihor, it's always seen through the lens of poverty, um, income generated by the island rather than thinking about it in relational terms, as you mentioned. And I think that's a powerful challenge to the dominant narrative of development in the Philippines. And I think, you know, with somewhere like Sikihor, because it's an island, the mistake is sometimes made that it's an isolated place. And it's not. I mean, it's totally integrated with the global economy. You know, farmers are selling copra on an international market, for example. So, you know, as somewhere like Sikihor is already embedded in these relations of inequality, and they're often being exploited in the context of that. Right. Well, I think we've um, challenged so many stereotypes in this discussion. I surely learned a lot. So I think just to wrap this up, I would like to ask you again, to what extent is this stereotype true? That when we talk about development in the Philippines, we always look to the United States. Look, I think uh, some utopic ideals of the US certainly influence Filipinos' notions of development, but it's much more co complex because Many people are also deeply uneasy about the adoption of American values and American ways of life. All right, thank you, Hannah. Uh, Hannah Bullock is the author of the book Pursuit of Progress, Narratives of Development on a Philippine Island. Thank you for listening.
Thanks, Nicole. This is the first time the country will see a project of this magnitude. Uh, never has the Philippines had a brand as powerful and as formidable as a Trump brand. Trump Tower Manila is going to be something special. There won't be anything like it in the Philippines and actually even going beyond the Philippines. This is going to be something that people love, that people respect as a structure, the service, everything involved is going to be first rate. We really look forward to it. It's going to be great.